The following presentation of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions is from a previous broadcast and is a production of Take 12 Recovery Radio. Some portions of this show may have included promotions or giveaways that were time-sensitive and may no longer be applicable. To listen and download more of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, visit our website at take12radio.com and click on Recovery Workshops. I've got to give it up. The views expressed on this episode of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions with Chris Schroeder do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or our affiliates. KHLT is not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Now here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Well, greetings, family, and welcome to another fine episode of Walking Through the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. Uh, here uh, with Chris Schroeder uh, as your uh, host. I'm really kind of your co-host. He's the one that's facilitating this thing, and it has been a whole lot of fun. Uh, we are just about halfway through uh, with Walking Through the Twelve by Twelve. We're going to be uh, launching forth into the Twelve Traditions here. Uh, what? Pro- probably next week, Chris. You know, I think we're going to finish up this week finally, Monty. On, on, on steps. You know, the, the twelfth step just has so much, so much meat in it that it's it's really hard to move through this this particular essay uh, quickly. Um, I, there's just so much in there. You know, we talked we talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, Bill Wilson's perspective kind of changed a little bit from the writing of the book Alcoholics Anonymous to the writing of the Twelve and Twelve. And I think he had a lot more to say about um, about practicing the principles. He had he had a, a, a lot more uh, to, to say about you know continuing to do these things and how we how we are to to carry this uh, this message message to this you know uh, people who need it. So he had he had a lot more to say. So it's pretty interesting. It's interesting stuff. And if you do not have a copy of the uh, Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, and you'd like to read along with us. Uh, you can visit aa.org, and you can get the PDF file there, download that, and read along with us. So, uh, as you were saying, there's so much in Step 12. Uh, tell the listeners once again, though, we, we always talk about this, how uh, this book is not directions on how to work the steps. You know, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, there's, there's information on uh, a little bit of information on how to work the steps, yet, yet it's not the guide for working the steps. There's information in here uh, on on the, the history. There's information in here on perspective. There's just some incredibly uh, astute insight into you know the alcoholic personalities, and then the challenges once an alcoholic is sober to uh, to attaining a, a a real true quality of life. There's there's so much good information in here. Um, again, I'll, I'll quickly talk about you know why this book has been problematic in the in the twelve step recovery world, and it, it's basically because of this. Even though there's a warning in the forward to the twelve and twelve, saying that this is not you know this is not meant to 
to uh, uh, to overshadow the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not meant, you know, to you know that's where you need to go. Uh, that's that's the basic text. This this particular edition is meant to broaden and deepen. Uh, the concepts uh, that are laid out in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, but uh, but a lot of people don't uh, didn't see it that way for a long, long time, and still today, people think that um, that if you're if you're going to be about the business of working the steps, you go to a bunch of step meetings, you get, you get the step book, and you start becoming familiar with uh, with the step book and the information in there. And in in a lot of fellowships, you'll go to what's known as twelve and twelve meetings. And you'll sit in those meetings, and a lot of people will share about uh, about their 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 belief systems as it as it relates to the steps, uh, but they don't necessarily share about their experience because many many people in the twelve step fellowships today are missing out on the true experience of actually taking uh, the twelve steps, and it's because uh, it's basically I think one of the reasons is because the book. The twelve and twelve was published, and it really leads people into philosophizing and agreeing with the steps in theory. <laughs> but it's but because it's <laughs> not an instruction book, people people tend to study it and then think that they've incorporated the steps in your life. The steps aren't something that you incorporate in your life. The steps are, are spiritual exercises that you take. And uh, and again, the the big book is uh, the book Alcoholics Anonymous is clear on that. Uh, the book Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions can lead can lead people astray, and allow you you know to go down a whole lot of dead ends, uh, and uh, it's just it's caused more trouble than I think it's almost worth this this particular book. But if it's used uh, if it's used correctly, and if uh, if there's a there's an understanding of you know what the book is for, and how it should be used, uh, I think it's incredibly beneficial to us uh it's just it's it's got that negative characteristic of uh sometimes allowing people to believe that they've incorporated the steps into their life because they go to a bunch of step meetings and read the step book does that make any sense yeah it sure does it's almost like it's almost like the same thing of just reading them off the wall and thinking you've done them yeah, you know, I'm not a, you know, I don't, I, I'm not one of the people that agree that you should put those steps up up on the wall, and and even worse than that, I, I don't like it when people put the tw- the twelve the twelve promises up on the wall. You, you know, uh, those twelve promises are usually taken out of context. The context that they relate to is before you're halfway through making all of your amends. Uh, those particular promises will come true, and pe- pe- when, it, when it's up on the wall, it's not in that context. Right. When it's up on the wall, it can lead the alcoholic mind to believe that uh, by coming to AA, those are the uh, the promises that you're going to get, or or where, whatever fellowship they're up on the wall on, and that's just uh, that's just uh, not not the truth. Uh, you, you know, you get you get the promises of the fellowship are, are are what you get from fellowship and you know that's that's discussed in a vision for you and some other places in the book alcoholics anonymous the the, the, the promises of the of the fellowship but the promises of the program happen when you actually take uh take the 12 steps right all right where did we leave off last week okay we are halfway down to page 118 in the book 12 steps and 12 traditions when the distortion has been great however a long period of Patient striving may be necessary. 
After the husband joins AA, the wife may become discontented, even highly resentful that Alcoholics Anonymous has done the very thing that all years of devotion had failed to do. Her husband may become so wrapped up in AA and his new friends that he is inconsistently, inconsiderately away from home more than when he drank. Seeing her unhappiness, he recommends AA's 12 steps and tries to teach her how to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. She naturally feels that for years she has made a far better job of living than he has. Both of them blame each other and ask when their marriage is ever going to be happy again. They may even begin to suspect that it has never been any good in the first place. You know, these, these are these challenges, and, uh, you know, I'll call them challenges, happen to a lot of people once they show up in, in the 12-step rooms and once they, they begin to... Uh, to practice recovery principles, you know, I you know I've counseled I've counseled a number of people over the years who uh, had more problems in their marriage, really more 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 uh, more serious problems in their marriage when they got sober than uh, than when they were drinking. A, a lot of times, a lot of times, what I've seen is the wife, uh, and it's only because I've uh, I've advised and and worked with. Men, you know, this could go on uh, on the other side uh, of the women's uh, side as well. But uh, but from what I've seen is a lot of times uh, when you have a really really drunken husband, uh, they abdicate real responsibility from the family. Uh, they're no longer paying the bills. You know, they, they'll be working, and the check will be showing up in the bank. Uh, but but they won't. You know, they're not going to be the ones going to the PTA. They're not going to be the ones. You know, picking people up at soccer matches, or you know, dealing with the income taxes at the end of the year—it's almost all they can do to hold a job and come home and drink. Now, all of a sudden, they they get they get sober, uh, Monty, and you know, uh, now they're they're going to meetings at night. Now the wife is worried because because, because you know, uh, someone someone called Bunny calls up and asks where the nearest gratitude meeting is or something, you know what I mean? And they're, they're worried about these women in AA are you going to steal their husband away? Uh, or or, or this will happen, you know, they'll start to reassert their their perceived dominance in the relationship. And they'll start, you know, uh, they'll start taking the checkbook back and asking questions about what, you know, why, why do we have this bill? Why did you buy that? And all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, this one guy that I was working with, his wife goes, "Damn it! You know, you were drunk for twenty years, and all of a sudden now you want to know what I'm doing? You know, no way! You know, and and uh, it was really, really bad. <laughs> and, and and this happens. So it's not automatic that when somebody gets sober, uh, the relationship, the family relationships, start to get better. Uh, you know, I think it can happen. I think the more you really work on your own character defects and leave the the rest of the family alone, which is almost impossible for an alcoholic or a drug addict to leave other people alone, you know, to, to not see problems in the family. But to the extent that you can work on your own spiritual condition and stay out of controversy and contention with the family uh, things things tend to tend to get better it's just that's not the experience of most people getting sober they they got to get their hands in it you know what i mean Monty? yeah sure you bet so uh so anyway uh compatibility of course can be so impossibly damaged that a separation may be necessary but those cases are the unusual ones the alcoholic realizing 
what his wife has endured and now fully understanding how much he himself did to damage her and his children nearly always takes up his marriage responsibilities with a willingness to repair what he can and accept what he can. He persistently tries all of AA's 12 steps in his home, often with fine results. At this point, he firmly but lovingly commences to behave like a partner instead of like a bad boy. And above all, he is finally convinced that reckless romancing is not a way of life for him. You know, none of my problems were reckless romancing <laughs> with with my marriage, uh, Monty, because my marriage was really only about 12 months long from 1980 to 1981. And when I was drinking the rest of that time, I was just so drunk, no one would have me. But, yeah. you know, I do understand that. Uh, but behaving like a partner instead of like a bad boy... My my wife, my wife today, Monty, probably her biggest criticism uh, when it comes to me is that she thinks I act childish. <laughs> that's, about 20, that's about 23 years of sobriety, Monty. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, well, you're just a big kid. <laughs> so I got to tell you, you know, was Bill Wilson right with this stuff? Oh, you know, are you kidding me? He sure was. Yeah. Uh, uh, AA has many single alcoholics who wish to marry and are in a position to do so. Some marry fellow AAs. I did try that. How do they come out? Uh, On the whole, these marriages are very good ones. Their common suffering as drinkers, their common interest in AA and spiritual things, often enhance such unions. It is only where boy meets girl on AA campus and love follows at first sight that difficulties may develop. The prospective partners need to to, to be solid AAs and long enough acquainted to know that, that their compatibility at spiritual, mental, and emotional levels is a fact and not wishful thinking. Now, that, that's a very, very insightful uh, couple of sentences. The prospective partners need to be solid AAs. What, what he means by that is meeting attendance, uh, sponsorship, having gone through the 12 steps, having had a spiritual awakening as a as the result of the 12 steps. And then when they meet someone, they need to, to get to know them enough to know that spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, they have compatibility. Now, now that, is, that is really amazing. I remember my first girlfriend, uh, you know, when I got, when I got sober. Uh, she also had gotten sober, Monty. And here we are together, and I didn't bother about, you know, spiritual, mental, emotional. I didn't, I didn't bother about, you know, both of us uh, having, having uh, gone through the 12 steps. I just, uh, you know, I just, you know, boy met girl, uh, on, you know, on the, on the recovery campus, and trouble soon followed, and, and that's kind of really what, uh, what happened with me. And it blew up uh, like the Hindenburg. You know, so yeah. when when he's warning you in here, he is just so right every single time. It's crazy. Uh, they need to be as sure as possible that no deep lying emotional handicap in either will be likely to rise up under later pressures to cripple them. And one of those did in my first relationship, and it was my insecurity and, and my my jealousy. Monty, that, that crept up way sooner than it should have. And all of a sudden, I wanted to know where she was and who she was talking to. And, rah, 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 rah. and, she, and she's like, we've been on three days. You know, it was, it, was just, it was just really bad. The considerations are equally true and important for the AAs who marry outside AA. 
with clear understanding and right grown-up attitudes, very happy results to follow. And I'm, I'm seeing that in my own life right now. And what can be said of many AA members who, for a variety of reasons, cannot have a family life? At first, many of these feel lonely, hurt, and left out as they witness so much domestic happiness about them. If they cannot have this kind of happiness, can AA offer them satisfactions of similar worth and durability? Yes, whenever they try hard to seek them out. Surrounded by many AA friends, these so-called loners tell us they no longer feel alone. In partnership with others, women and men, they can devote themselves to any number of ideas, people, and constructive projects. Free of marital responsibilities, they can participate in enterprises which would be denied to family men and women. We daily see such members render prodigious uh, prodigies of service and receive great joys in return. And, you know, uh, it's kind of, uh, I've learned some things maybe Bill Wilson didn't know when he was writing this book, because, I, you know, I've studied some people who really understand uh, relationships in, uh, in recovery mind. And one of the things that we do, uh, one of the things that a lot of times people who just seem to be single do is they live lives uh, conducive to remaining single. In other words, uh, it's through their actions, uh, either of commission or omission, through those actions they have rendered themselves uh, single for life, whether they've you know, consciously made that decision or not. And it has to do a lot of times with boundaries or, you know, uh, uh, trauma issues or selfishness and self-centeredness where it concerns money and, and just an inability to form a partnership. That happens, that happens a lot. And it doesn't mean that you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna find a way to be happy. I, I don't believe that. I think that, uh, I think that you can be single and happy. Some of, some of my real critical spiritual advisors of the last 20 years, Monty, rendered themselves permanently single uh, by doing things like if, if they wanted to go on a meditation retreat for a month, they'd get in the car and go. Now, now you can't, you can't necessarily do that if you're married. You know what I mean? Right. And so, and, but, but they, they saw that as, as an overriding uh, um, requirement in their life to be able to do things like that. So they, in effect, rendered themselves uh, permanently single. Again, I, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing or a good thing. It just is. And, and it would be good to uh, understand it, though, and not sit there and go, you know, why don't I have somebody if, if you haven't opened yourself up uh, in a way that's conducive to a relationship. And some and some people are simply, and it's a biblical principle too. Some people are are simply gifted with the ability to be single for the rest of their lives, so they can turn and be in the service of God and their fellows. Oh, sure. You know, it can be a conscious choice. It yeah. can be a conscious choice. You know, I I don't see that as much in recovery though as I see people who have really made that choice. You know, but don't know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Where the possession of money and material things was concerned, our outlook underwent the same revolutionary change. With a few exceptions, all of us had been spendthrifts. We threw money about in every direction with the purpose of pleasing ourselves and impressing other people. Hmm. <laughs> There's a guy I know, Monty, who spends money he doesn't have, trying uh, buying things he doesn't need to impress people he doesn't like. 
And you know, I, I've been I've been working with him for years on this. You know, he's joining gun clubs or or you know buying you know expensive cars that you know and uh, and and he's he's not a, he's not really a good steward of uh, of God's money, uh, which is uh, which is something we we really all need to need to learn how to do. So that there'll be uh, a supply in abundance. Uh, I think right. once you've re- really learned how to be a good steward of God's money, uh, abundance comes. In our drinking time, we acted as if mo- the money supply was inexhaustible. Though between benches, we'd sometimes go to the other extreme and become almost miserly, without realizing that we were just accumulating funds for the next spree. Money was a symbol of pleasure and self-importance. When our drinking had become much worse, money was only an urgent uh, requirement, which could supply us with the next drink and temporarily comfort of oblivion it brought. You know, that's that's so true for me. Monty, my last years of drinking, my life was just in such turmoil, and I was suffering such uh, emotional and psychic pain that really the only reason uh, I, I was drinking in those days was uh, was to, to check out, to, to, to render myself unconscious so that I stopped suffering. It was anesthesia. There was the party was over. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. upon entering AA, these attitudes were sharply reversed, often going much too far in the opposite direction. The spectacle of years of waste threw us into panic. There simply wouldn't be time, we thought, to rebuild our shattered fortunes. How could we ever take care of those awful debts, possess a decent home, educate the kids, and set something by for old age? Financial importance was no longer a financial principal aim. We now clamored for material security. Even when we were well reestablished in our businesses, these terrible fears often continued to haunt us. This made us misers and penny pinchers all over again. Complete financial security we must have or else. We've, we forgot that most alcoholics in AA have an earning power considerably above average. We forgot the immense goodwill of our brother AAs who were only too eager to help us to better jobs when we deserved them. We forgot the actual or potential financial insecurity of every human being in the world. And worst of all, we forgot God. In money matters, we had faith only in ourselves and not too much of that. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I have seen who showed up in the recovery fellowships, Monty, coming out of uh, detox or rehab or whatever, and immediately started working 14-hour days or getting obsessively compulsive about exercise or, or, or something, some hobby or something that, you know, it's almost like a, an inner need to make up time. And, uh, and it's usually a disaster. A lot of times what they say is whatever you put in front of your recovery, you'll lose that and your recovery. That's right. Do that. That's and, right. And, and you, know, you know what? I believe that because I have seen it, I've seen it happen, you know, way too many times. Uh, I, I, I used to say this, uh, this isn't something I made up, I, I wish I had, but I heard it somewhere. It was like, I, I, I got sober, I got a job, I got a truck, I got a girlfriend, I got drunk. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got, I got, I got, yeah, I got it. Yeah. You know, I sure, I sure did. Yeah. Uh, this all meant, of course, that we were still far off balance. When a job still looked like a mere means of getting money rather than an opportunity for service, when the acquisition of money for financial independence looked more important than a right dependence upon God, we were still the victims of unreasonable fears. And these were fears which would make sense 
uh, make a serene and useful existence uh, at any financial level quite impossible. You know, fears, fears are the evil and corroding thread of our lives. The fabric of our existence is shot through with these. This is how Bill talks about fear in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I've got to tell you, you know, when he's that serious in his language, you know, there's truly danger. And I, and I believe our unreasonable fears uh, just, uh, just soak every bit of quality that we could be having in our lives out of our lives. You know, fear really causes that, that angst, that suffering. And, uh, and you know, we, we, just, we just never feel comfortable when we're in that type of fear. Sure. But as time passed, we found that with the help of AA's 12 steps, we could lose those fears, no matter what our material prospects were. We could cheerfully perform humble labor without worrying about tomorrow. If our circumstances happened to be good, we no longer dreaded a change for the worse, for we had learned that these troubles could be turned into great values. It did not matter too much what our material condition was, but it did matter what our spiritual condition was. Money gradually became our servant and not our master. It became a means of exchanging love and service with those about us. When, with God's help, we calmly accepted our lot, then we found we could live at peace with ourselves and show others who still suffered the same fears that they could get over them too. We found that freedom from fear was more important than freedom from want. You know, I've, I've probably read this book 300 times. Bonnie, that just jumped out at me. Freedom from fear was more important than freedom from want. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you know, so many, so many folks, and, I, and I've, I've been guilty of this too in the past, uh, when we don't have uh, the material things, uh, the, the ability to access uh, finances, uh, when the power is getting ready to get turned off or you're not you're without garbage service for months or whatever you you know we get we get afraid and it's almost like instead of pressing into god we pull back uh, that seems to be the the human condition um but as spiritual beings i think it is absolutely uh absolutely necessary that we learn how to press in uh, when things are going well. I mean, because if, if we can't press in when things are going well, if we just kind of go hunky-dory and everything's going fine and we're not keeping that, that constant contact with God that the, that the literature constantly talks about, then when things go bad, we're not pressed in at all and so we even pull back even further and then fear sets in and uh, we really run the risk of, of not just drinking, we run the risk of doing something even more permanent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, uh, un- unfortunately, that, that's that's so true. Let's here take note of our improved outlook upon problems of personal importance, power, ambition, and leadership. These were reefs upon, money, uh, upon which many of us came to shipwreck during our drinking careers. Practically every boy in the United States dreams of becoming our president. He wants to be his country's number one man. As he gets older and sees the impossibility of this, he can smile good-naturedly at his childhood dream. In later life, he finds that real happiness is not to be found in just trying to be uh, a number one man or even a first-rater in the heartbreaking struggle for money, romance, or self-importance. He learns that he can be content as long as he plays well whatever cards life deals him. 
He's still ambitious, but not absurdly so, because he can now see and accept actual reality. He is willing to stay right size. But not so with alcoholics. When AA was quite young, a number of eminent psychologists and doctors made an exhaustive study of a good-sized group of so-called problem drinkers. The doctors weren't trying to find how different we were from one another. They sought to find whatever personality traits, if any, this group of alcoholics had in common. They finally came up with a conclusion that shocked the AA members at that time. These distinguished men had the nerve to say that most of the alcoholics under investigation were still childish, emotionally sensitive, and grandiose. Can you imagine, Mud? <laughs> you know, you're, you're there's 15 <laughs> psychiatrists that come back after this study to announce, you know, uh, to Bill Wilson and the, and the first 2,000 alcoholics or whatever what they've found. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are but, childish, emotionally sensitive, and grandiose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Grandiosity. Grandiosity yeah. is what you suffer from, kid. I remember a guy used to tell me that. Grandiosity. I thought, what, what is he talking about? I have a $100 car and I live with mom. <laughs> you know? But he was, he was, he, but I was, I was grandiose. I had this gigantic ego. You know, I was, I, I was always right. I know what's going on. It was, I, 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 I. Me, 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 me. It's the only note I knew how to say. <laughs> right. Me, you know? How we alcoholics did resent that verdict. Uh, we would not believe that our adult dreams were often truly childish. And considering the rough deal life had given us, we felt it perfectly natural that we were sensitive. As to our grandiose behavior, we insisted that we had been possessed of nothing but a high and legitimate ambition to win the battle of life. I don't think anybody wants to win the battle of life more than us, but is less equipped at actually dealing with <laughs> money, yeah. you know, like we're, we're, you know, I, I, how many bar stool dreams did we have, you know, you know, I, I used to live in a land, you know what that land was called, Monty? What? Fantasy? Someday I'll. Oh, someday I'll. <laughs> someday I'll own a business. Someday I'll be able to buy and sell that guy. Someday I'll. Yeah, I lived on Someday Isle. <laughs> In the years since, however, most of us have come to agree with those doctors. We have had a much keener look at ourselves and those about us. We have seen that we were prodded by unreasonable fears or anxieties into making a life business of winning fame, money, and what we thought was leadership. False pride became the reverse side of that ruinous coin marked fear. We simply had to be number one people to cover up our deep-lying inferiorities. In fitful successes, we boasted of greater feats to be done. In defeat, we were bitter. If we didn't have much of any worldly success, we became depressed and cowed. Then people said we were of the inferior type. But now we see ourselves as chips off the same old block. At heart, we had all been abnormally fearful. It mattered little whether we sat on the shore of life, drinking ourselves into forgetfulness, or had plunged in recklessly and willfully beyond our depth and ability. The reason was the same. All of us had nearly perished in a sea of alcohol. But today, in well-matured AAs, these distorted drives have been restored to something like their true purpose and direction. This is what recovery is. That's, a, that's, another, that's another description of recovery. Our distorted uh, uh, emotional and instinctual drives have been restored to something like their true purpose and direction. We no longer strive to dominate or rule those about us in order to gain self-importance. We no longer seek fame and honor in order to be praised. 
when by devoted service to family, friends, businesses, or community, we attract widespread affection and are sometimes singled out for posts of greater responsibility and trust, we try to be humbly grateful and exert ourselves the more in a spirit of love and service. True leadership, we find, depends upon able um, example and not upon vain displays of power and glory. You know, I, I so believe that. Monty, you know, re- recovery, sometimes sometimes emotional recovery, takes many, many years. And, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at my career today. I've got a very good career. I'm in a very senior position with uh, just so much responsibility and, and tons of employees and, 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 you know, a gigantic budget. And, uh, you know, I, I really have a lot, of, uh, a lot of responsibility. I don't think I would have been ready for it, you know, five years ago. Sure. And, you know, today I have it. And, and I don't think I, when I had 15 years sober, I would have been ready for it. I, you know, I have that feeling. Maybe I would have been. But I, but I think, I think, uh, I think recovery is uh, cumulative. You know, over over the course of time, you you add to it. Uh, does that does that ring true for you? Yeah, I think so too. I, I can't I can't imagine uh, even attempting what I'm doing now. Uh, you know, ten years ago, there's just I may have dreamed it and wished it and so forth. But um, hey, hey, quite frankly, see, we're in our eighth year, right? So, quite frankly, yeah. I can't even think of me doing this five years ago, <laughs> and we're in our eighth year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That really is true. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it is by a wing and a prayer. Um, still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Not happy, not many of us can be leaders or prominence, nor do we wish to be. Service gladly rendered, obligation squarely met, Troubles well accepted or solved with God's help. The knowledge that at home or in the world outside we are partners in a common effort. The well-understood fact that God sight all human beings is important. The proof that love freely given surely brings a full return. The certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons. The surety that we need no longer be square pegs and round holes, but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are the permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living, for which no amount of pomp and circumstance, no heap of material possessions could possibly be sub- substitutes. That's like the longest sentence in the, in recovery literature, i got to tell you, Monty. But how powerful uh, is that? How powerful is that? I mean, that that is just, doesn't everybody really deep down want that? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know it. Absolutely. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. You know, here's that word humble again. Uh, this whole book is shot through with humility. When, when Bill was writing this book, that was probably his, his call to action, uh, was, was uh, the, the, uh, the essence of hum- humility in his life. Because uh, it, it, it just rings out in every step covered in this book. What? Let, let me let me ask you this. Uh, in, and I'm going to take a pot shot here, and I'll probably get some pot shots back, and that's okay. But and you often, uh, you know, um, with a, with humor in your voice, <laughs> say I'm al- I'm already uh, you know becoming less popular you know, day by day, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway. Today's fellowship, not today's program, because the program's still what's what we're reading here, but today's 
uh, 12-step fellowships have strayed so far from humility in many instances, not all, but in many, I can see where it is very easy for them to miss this. Uh, yeah, I think, I think a lot of things have shown up. A lot of outside influences have shown, shown up inside the recovery rooms, Monty. And uh, to, to a degree, we're in a, we're in a culture that believes in uh, winning through intimidation. Uh, how to influence, mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, friends and you know, win influence and, and uh, become successful. How to think and grow rich. I mean, you know, these are all, these are all concepts that, uh, that we're indoctrinated on. You know, the Tony Robbins, you know, take your life by the bootstraps and make it special, you know. And, and a, a lot of times, really, to survive as an alcoholic, you have you have to kind of not be that way, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, you, yeah. You you you, you kind of have to you kind of have to uh, remain, you know, at least a little bit right size. If if not humble, at least right size. You, you know what I mean? Well, and and I I don't know if if you said it or maybe Bruce said it, but we walk around claiming that we're powerless, and then we go out and try to fix ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. People see uh, the twelve step fellowships as self help programs when, when they're not. They're they're self abandonment God help programs, right? <laughs> and and they can, they can get it completely wrong and, and come in and be working on their character defects and working on this. And I'm going to my meeting so that I can fill up my spiritual tank and. And you know they're they're just they're not they're they're not looking at it with the with the right perspective. Sure, they're not you know they're not coming in the right way. Um, um, we have been considering so many problems that it may appear that AA consists mainly of racking dilemmas and troubleshootings. Uh, to a certain extent, that is true. We have been talking about problems because we are problem people who have found a way up and out, and who wish to share our knowledge of that way with all who can use it. For it is only by accepting and solving our problems that we can begin to get right with ourselves and with the world about us, and with Him who presides over us all. Understanding is the key to right principles and attitudes, and right action is the key to good living. Therefore, the joy of good living is the theme of AA's 12th step. With each passing day of our lives, may every one of us sense more deeply the inner meaning of AA's simple prayer, God grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. And uh, that concludes the the readings, Monty, of uh, of uh, the uh, the twelve step portion of the twelve of twelve. Wow. Okay. Now let's uh, let's take a moment here. Now we've gone through step one through twelve in the twelve by twelve. At this point, to the listener, what would be your recommendation that they do with this information? Now, we know what we're doing in the big book. We're, we're learning how to, uh, to work these things. We're learning how to apply and implement these things. But at this point, now that we've expounded on these 12 steps, now what, bud? Well, you know, here, here's how I like to use this book. And again, this is, over, this is after many, many years and being through this book several hundred times, if not 400 times. 
because of uh, the meetings I've attended and the, and the, the studies I've done with it. Now, and there, there's there's this thing that everybody thinks is like newfangled, and they're calling it mindfulness meditation, Monty. What, what I believe it is is I believe it's a resurgence of of Christian, uh, uh, well, not just Christian, but but religious uh, religious guided prayer, and how you do it basically is you read some spiritual literature and then you get very very quiet. And then you contemplate, you, you become mindful of that particular paragraph and what it means to you in this moment right now. And I love, I love Bill's writings. Bill's writings are wonderful to ponder on. They're wonderful to think about. They're wonderful to identify with. They're wonderful to have people read so, so, so that they can, they can see that they're not so different that they're not so unique and that their case is not completely different than everyone else's. Uh, that's a good use of this particular book. However, you know, I wouldn't expose somebody to this book until, until uh, they've gone through the prerequisite, and the prerequisite is working uh, the steps and, uh, and uh, the spiritual principles out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. That, that's just how I do it. But when somebody's like, like three or four years sober or clean, and, you know, they've gone through the steps a couple of times, and they're, they're looking for, you know, devotional uh, or special spiritual literature, this, this is the, the 12 essays on the 12 steps are a great place to land. Uh, you know, they're a great thing to put into your, uh, your studies, you know, your spiritual studies. Uh, they should not be used as uh, as instructional as far as going through the steps. They should be used as uh, something that illuminates the steps, uh, brightens the steps up like a spotlight would, but uh, not to be used as uh, an instruction manual. Right, right. That's a good word, my friend. Very, very good. Uh, I think that uh, it would really behoove somebody who was sponsoring people to be familiar with, I mean, assuming they have worked uh, the 12 steps. Uh, you know, you and I are on the same page with that. I mean, how can you how can you impart something to somebody if you haven't done it? Uh, that it would behoove uh, a sponsor to be familiar with the 12 steps, the 12 traditions book uh, and uh, and not to use it, but but not to use it as an instructional manual uh, with the newcomer, because uh, I, I can see where, you, you know, we, we are prepared, uh, God prepares our minds and our spirits to, to go further and to go forward, but you have to start somewhere, you can't just jump in the middle of it, otherwise you become very confused and many times just throw in the towel and uh, don't want to, don't want to, uh, to complete what you really should complete from the very beginning. These things are uh, numbered in, in order for a purpose. Um, I think, uh, well, let, let's just look at uh, the book, The Twelve and Twelve. It wasn't written the same time as the big book. There's probably a good reason for that. God already knew why that would not work. Um, but I, I, I do want to say, Chris, this has been very enlightening, and you do such an excellent job always. And I'm real excited about uh, our next uh our next venture in here going into the 12 traditions. Um, can you give, uh, here we're just about out of time, can you give some encouragement to the listener that might think, oh, well, I really enjoyed the 12 steps part of this, but, you know, the 12 traditions, eh, you know, that's 
That's for business meetings, and that's for people that know the concepts and blah, 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 blah. Can you encourage the listeners to to stay tuned to what's coming up? Absolutely. And I'll say it like this. So often you can hear in uh, in recovery fellowships that the 12 steps are for, you know, the personal recovery uh, uh, of the person, and the 12 traditions are uh, for the group. And and so what you've done is you've basically said those traditions don't apply to you. They apply to a group that if you're still selfish and self-centered, you could care less really about the group. You're, you you want to you want to concentrate on the steps because that's about you. Well, that that's not true. First of all, it's a bad attitude to have, but the information is not true. Inherent in the twelve traditions are twelve spiritual principles that can be used in your personal relationships with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers. Uh, th- these principles can be applied where they're appropriate and, and, uh, and, uh, and available. <laughs> these, pr- these, these traditions can apply and can, can qualitatively improve your life through improving your relationships with others. You know, in this book we read, uh, defective relationships are almost always the cause of our immediate woes, including our alcoholism. Well, a, a good study and application of the spiritual principles in the 12 traditions can drastically improve those defective relationships by, uh, uh, by, by just teaching you fairness of relationship. You know, so... So if you're one of those uh, if you're one of those guys that went that, that uh, you know the first three Mondays are steps and the the fourth the fourth Monday is, is a tradition and you're out of there because it's boring and it's not about you uh, you're looking at it the wrong way you, you need you need to look at the spiritual uh, principle not necessar- not necessarily how 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 it's uh, how the the verbiage applies it. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's very, very, very helpful. And so next week we're going to uh, launch uh, on this journey of the 12 traditions. Uh, once again, just a, a, an excellent show. Uh, uh, Chris, thank you so much, as always. You rock, my brother. I'm really having a good time, as always, with you, Monty. You're, uh, you're an inspiration, and what, what value you, you bring to, to recovery with this show. Uh, I, I commend you, my brother. Well, thank you so, so very much. All right, our email address is take12radio at comcast.net. And uh, until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man wishing God's perfect serenity. For you.